0: This evening I wanted to reflect a little upon the qualities of aloneness and intimacy. There's a few lines by Lao Tzu It says, Ordinary people hate solitude, but the Master makes use of it, embracing her aloneness, realizing she's one with the whole universe. These two qualities of aloneness and intimacy. There's something I've been personally reflecting upon for for many years. Appreciating, you know, for some some of us, it's it's really easy to be alone. In fact, we love it. You know, we love solitude. Um, yet we may not be so good at relatedness, at intimacy. And there may be others, you know, who this is really their forte in life. You know, they they know all about relationship. They're they're at ease with other people. They love to be with others, and yet may find it very hard to be alone. I feel like these are these are lessons of balance we learn through our lives and. they're very very much not separate. But in a way, our capacity for aloneness also needs to be manifested in a way in our capacity for intimacy if it's genuine. And our completeness, our, our freedom in relatedness, seems to rely a great deal also upon our capacity to be alone. Our capacity for solitude. It's interesting in, in this experience of a retreat, you know, how we're here and you, you can be surrounded by, by 80, 90 other women. And yet, in many ways, you're essentially alone. In the sense that not one of those other women, of course, can take the seat your seat on your cushion can deliver to you the happiness or peace that you seek for. Not one of those other women can be a substitute for you in the challenging moments of heartache and joy that you meet. Probably not one of those other women in the room really experiences the world or each moment in exactly the same way that you do has exactly the same past or present. So so true that no matter how much we kind of might argue with it, that not one of the other women around us really has the power to lead us to be lost in suffering or conflict, nor the power to release us from sorrow into freedom. Shantideva once said, I was born alone and at death, true, I shall die alone. Yet even as we sense the kind of aloneness that we really touch on in a retreat, it's also very clear how intimate and how connected we are. That our solitude is held within this world and within this community that our solitude and our aloneness is held within the larger world, and the larger community that surrounds us every moment in our day. And in very real ways, as as we listen to each other, as we talk to each other, as we come to know each other, we really appreciate the ways in which our joys, our sorrows, our pains, our longings, our dreams, our struggles how all of those are happening around us in different forms. That sometimes the details differ, you know, and the content differs. And yet we sense also the interrelatedness and the kind of universality of our heart and mind. Milarepa once put it, when he said, you know, Long used to contemplating compassion. I have quite forgotten the difference between self and other. We see how we're together in this web. I mean, certainly here on this retreat, you know, in silence and stillness, how we come to know each other in so many different ways. You know, how another person walks how they take their seat on their cushion, how they eat their food. We listen to their dreams through the walls. (laughs) We we come to know each other in so many different ways. And we also appreciate the way that we're constantly affecting each other and being affected by each other. You know, that it's not possible to separate ourselves in in a way in which we're not Again and again, just being touched by each other's presence and each other's journey. And we see the changes we go through in that interrelatedness. That you know, sometimes we feel very inspired by it, we feel very, very supported, very, very cared for within it. Sometimes we see also within that interrelatedness a whole other range of feelings and emotions it's possible for us to have. You know, we can get so annoyed with people, so irritated. You know, how they put on their shoes, how they dress, how they comb their hair, how they hog the shower. You know, all the different ways that we can respond to that interrelatedness, yet the one thing we cannot do is remove ourselves from it. We're here. We're here, it's not possible to deny our aloneness, but nor is it possible to ignore our relatedness. And in many ways, these two parallels of experience of aloneness and relatedness that we have here on a retreat get repeated and magnified, of course, in every dimension of our lives. And I really feel like our invitation and our challenge is not to fear either of these dimensions. And it's also not to treat them as opposites. And also not to make a hierarchy out of them. But to learn how to embrace both and to really learn how to be free in both. You know, Wilke once said, What is necessary after all is only this solitude, vast inner solitude, to walk inside yourself and meet no one for hours. This is what you must find." And yet, a little later on, goes on to say, you know, for one human being to love another human being, this is perhaps the most difficult task entrusted to us, the ultimate task, the work for which all other work is merely preparation. In many ways, we begin to experience that the solitude here on a retreat you know, is not intended to be some kind of deprivation or punishment, but what it really brings us to, it's, it's a real teaching in, in how to be intimate with ourselves. That's what it's really about. It's a teaching in how to be intimate with ourselves, and in really knowing that finding the freedom to be intimate with all beings. And so to do you remember, you know, the original meaning of the word aloneness was all one. All one. To find in, in solitude and aloneness a quality of completeness within our own being in which there's really no feeling of there being anything missing or lost, where we really don't have to feel that we have to gain something or add something or become something but where we can rest inwardly rest with confidence with in compassion and acceptance in ourselves and learning how to be intimate with ourselves means learning how to rest inwardly in a way that doesn't exclude anything. It includes all our interchanges of the passing feelings and thoughts and memories and hopes, really learning how to embrace all of that without ever being lost, without ever feeling the need to flee from anything, to reject anything, to grasp anything or to deny anything. This kind of sense of being or presence is really the heart of meditation. To find the stillness, the intimate, inner intimacy with all things within ourselves. To learn also, yeah, to also to learn how to be intimate, how to be close with others with everything that comes into our world, without ever losing ourselves also. To learn the lessons about how to approach relatedness without any sense of deprivation. Because I think sometimes we know when we approach relatedness and we need too much, we just get into trouble. When we need too much, we just get into trouble. But how to learn how to approach relatedness in our lives. Again, the same lessons as we learn inwardly. How not to reject, how not to grasp, to learn how to be alone with others. This is also the heart of meditation. Because we learn, isn't it, through intimacy. What are the lessons of intimacy? They are lessons of compassion, of appreciation, of forgiveness of of love of openness of stillness and these are lessons we don't just learn once haven't we been learning them all these days we don't learn them just once we really learn what it means not to abandon ourselves and not to abandon anything and that asks for a lot of patience that asks for a lot of patience because we're learning this huge lesson about how to trust ourselves, how to feel complete within ourselves. And that's, that's, you know, in that journey of inner intimacy, we can meet really some remarkable levels of joy. And we can also meet some pretty remarkable levels of fear. And so we also see that when we approach relatedness in our, in our lives, when we approach other people within, when we approach intimacy in our lives, we also encounter the same possibilities of joy and happiness and the same possibilities of fear and insecurity and anxiety that we meet in our own inner relatedness. You know, this path, the whole of this path, essentially, you know, it could be said that it's really about learning what it means to be free. And free not just in the sense of permission or, you know, the permission to do what we want, say what we want, act what we want. It's certainly not freedom in the sense of trying to find freedom from responsibility or commitment or connectedness. But the freedom of not being imprisoned, confined, governed by anything inwardly or outwardly. And a lot of that freedom, you know, in a sense, is actually what aloneness is. You know, when I talk about aloneness, it's not about some kind of geographical location. And it's certainly not loneliness or alienation or separation. But the freedom of not leaning on anything that crumbles, the freedom found in not needing to abandon anything. I do feel that when we, when we do, as many of you have talked about during this retreat, when we start to really explore that inner aloneness, when we really learn how to be intimate with ourselves, inevitably we often find ourselves in the place of exploring fear and the variety of ways that fear manifests in our lives and in our hearts and our minds. Heidegger once said, Anxiety is there. It is only sleeping. (laughs) Its breath quivers perpetually through our being. (laughs) What we experience, of course, is that there are really so many different tones of fear, aren't there? It feels like there's so many different flavors of it. There's a kind of background self-consciousness. Now, we all encounter that on a retreat. You know, have I got the right walking style? You know, do I look good? You know, have I got the right, you know, the right clothes, the right shoes, you know, the right mind, the right body? You know, what do other people think about me? You know, we have that kind of background self-consciousness that, you know, appears and disappears. Sometimes it can be very powerful, you know, in a way that we feel very, very small, very lessened, very diminished in some ways. Sometimes it's really not so bad. It's just a kind of chatter. We encounter the fear of repeating painful experiences that we've already had. And we encounter the ways how much time and energy and strategy we put in to trying to prevent ourselves from repeating the painful experiences that we've already had. You know, we see this not only on a retreat, we sense it in our lives how much time and energy goes into avoiding perhaps the person who's hurt us. How we can come into the meditation room with all kinds of plans about how to avoid repeating that difficult sitting we had before. Sometimes we see the fear of the future. You know, what's going to happen when we leave a retreat? You know, how are we going to cope? How are we going to stop ourselves from falling into the same ruts we were in before? We can see sometimes fear manifesting in, in sort of should and might attacks, you know, what might happen what might happen, what if, without that whole mind. And what we're really doing when when some of that fear arises, of course, is we're really touching that reality of living in an uncertain world. Sometimes even here on a retreat, we experience the fear about making choices, even small choices. You know, should I walk outside today? Maybe I should walk outside, but if I walk outside today, I might lose my space inside. You know, if I walk outside today, you know, I could get sunburned. But if I walk inside, I'll miss, I'll miss listening to the the birds and the, and seeing the woods. You know, blah, 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 yeah. even a small choice. You know, we can get absolutely so tied in these knots. Never mind, of course, the larger life choices and decisions that we have to make with their long lists of for and against, you know, that we can spend hours pondering. Then we wish that life came with more guarantees. We can see our fear of relatedness, of being hurt, of being judged, of being found to be lacking, but yet we can also sense sometimes our fear in being alone and the way in which we, we so quickly equate al- aloneness with loneliness and alienation. And what we also encounter in a retreat, I think, is sometimes a bit we touch on a very deep existential fear. You know, the fear of, of being no one, the fear of being invisible, You know, the the Buddha once said, the two greatest fears of a human being are the fears of having nothing and the fears of being no one. And this is, I think, a fear we do touch on often in meditation. You know, we see these kind of layers of ourselves, of our identities, of our, our certainties, of our images. We see some of those layers just beginning to kind of peel away, to fall away. And then there's that existential fear, you know, well, what happens if they keep falling away and there's nothing in the middle? You know, and it, that can feel like a very, very terrifying prospect. You know, although in this tradition, that's considered good news. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to look on it that way. They go, oh, no, you know, dread, you know, terror. Ajahn Chah once said, You know, when everything that can fall, when everything falls away that can fall away, what is left is what is true. When we explore fear, we actually begin to sense how much fear is really at the root of so many of our emotions. You know, what is greed but the fear of not having enough, the fear of being deprived? You know, what is anger, but the fear of being hurt, or the fear of helplessness? You know, what is anxiety, but the fear of uncertainty? You know, what is jealousy, but the fear of somehow being less? You know, what is grasping, but the fear of being no one? You know, that we fear being invisible, so we need to prove ourselves. We fear being noticed, so we try to make ourselves invisible. We see that fear is not only the root of so many of our emotions, but also the root of so many of our big mental storms and stories and rehearsals, the whole whirlwinds of the mind that we find ourselves in. When we kind of take them apart a little bit, we see this underlying current of fear. And what is one of our first responses? Of course, our first response when we meet fear is, you know, to do whatever we can do to get rid of it. We want it to end. We want it to go away. You know, we can see how much in our lives, how much of our lives is actually dedicated, not to exploring fear, but instead to kind of solidifying as much as we can certainty and safety. You know, in doing that, we're often looking, of course, for a refuge in which we can actually lay down the burden of protectiveness and defensiveness and striving. You know, that search for a refuge of ease and well-being and peace, it's a really noble search. And yet, sadly, with our wisdom, when it's driven by anxiety, we try to discover that refuge in places where it's simply not going to be found in trying to make the world, or trying to make other people stand still for us, rather than finding a refuge of stillness within our own hearts and minds. Trying to flee from fear and anxiety is actually quite an endless task, which is sometimes really rather lethal to our well-being. You know, one of the most popular ways, I think, in our culture of trying to flee from anxiety is through things and objects, through surrounding ourselves with all the things that's possible for us to possess. And we can do that, and actually we find that all of that stuff that's possible for us to possess actually begins to overfill and clutter our lives to such an extent that our homes are not even any longer a sanctuary from a hostile world. Instead, we can end up with this mindset of hoarders, you know, where we can't let go. And then all the stress have come, that comes from endeavoring to maintain and protect and defend all our stuff. You know, I live with, with a family of hoarders. This is a really a karmic misfortune. <laughs> Everybody in my family is a hoarder. You know, my son has every tooth that's ever fallen out. <laughs> My partner saves all his holy socks, shoes sort of worn out, coming apart, you know, sweaters filled with holes. They all go up in the attic. Everything goes up in the attic, you know. I have nightmares sometimes about sometimes the roof collapsing, you know, and all these kind of old teeth and old shoes chasing me down the stairs. It seems a lot of our identity comes from the stuff that we surround ourselves with. You know, there's this new job in the West called clutter consultants, would you believe? (laughs) Clutter consultants whose job it is to try and teach people to embrace the truth that having is not happiness. (laughs) That not only does having not release us from fear, but it becomes a source of fear. You know, I think in real ways, we need to learn how to be our own inner clutter consultant. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I had this wonderful experience. You know, I was, I was getting so tired of kind of people's clutter that I thought actually might not be a bad idea to start with myself. So in my office, I had this filing cabinet, you know, and it's just interesting in my filing cabinet, because stuff only gets put into it, it never comes out, (laughs) you know, it's one of those things, you know, like 15 years worth of paper, and I drown in paper, you know, board minutes, you know, old talks, you know, income tax returns, you know, correspondence, books I've started and never finished, you know, all this stuff. You know, so first, the first drawer I thought, well, I'll clear this filing cabinet first drawer I started going through really mindfully, you know, I just, and, and, and I found out, you know, like everything was, nothing was really in use anymore. So instead I got the garbage, the recycling bin inside, and I dumped the whole filing cabinet into the recycling bin. So three drawers, 15 years worth of paper, and put it out for the recycling guys. What a liberation. Then I got rid of the filing cabinet, so I have no potential <laughs> for hoarding paper anymore. Of course, I'm waiting for the penny to drop and for somebody to call me up and say, you know, have you got that bank statement from 1998? <laughs> no, you know, I don't have any paper anymore, you know. <laughs> it's a wonderful feeling. It felt like this wonderful liberation, you know. It's just gone, you know. It's just gone. Yeah, it might have consequences, you know. But I think you know being an inner clutter consultant is kind of looking at what do we lean on, what do we armor ourselves with that we really don't need. That we really don't need. That hooks us as a way of kind of attempting to camouflage anxiety, as a way of not embracing aloneness. You know, having main you know, having it's, it's often a way of trying to control, isn't it? Trying to demarcate our world. You know, and we so miss the point, you know, that we can't measure our lives by what we have. You know, we may not lean, so, you know, we may be the kind of person who doesn't lean so much upon things for a refuge. Instead, we may lean upon other people. You know, the. The fear of being alone, the obvious way out, really is to submerge ourselves in another, to find identity through relatedness, to hold on to someone as somehow being a kind of savior from aloneness or solitude, or a savior from fear. And yet sometimes when we do that, and I think that's especially lethal in our conditioning, you know, how easily we abandon ourselves, how easily we abandon ourselves, and, and what we soon discover is that in abandoning ourselves, we don't find intimacy or freedom. We become the prisoner of somebody else's fears. and so we do. We become the prisoner of somebody else's fears, someone else's desire to control. You know, that whole mythology about somebody saving us, somebody making us happy, somebody freeing us, freeing us of course, is a mythology that sustains so many abusive and claustrophobic relationships in our culture. And they're, you know, they're not relationships that ever lead to freedom. It becomes increasingly clear that to really be intimate with another, we really know how, need to know how to be intimate with ourselves. That we need to find the space to explore and to investigate and to embrace our aloneness. Not rejecting relationship, but not learning when we lead, when we, when we lean. When we lean, when we rely too much. Not grasping, not clinging, not leaning. This is really the key to both aloneness and intimacy. And really the key to understand what it means to be released from fear. Not even grasping fear. You know, for some people, the search... The search for refuge may not lead them so much to things or, or to people. We may have learnt those lessons, but we may instead find ourselves on more subtle levels, level, seeking that refuge in a kind of role or identity or becoming, being someone, as a way of being safe in the world. Mm-hmm. That whole taking hold of a role and identity can be so subtle sometimes. You know, some years ago, at a time, you know, I, I, I'd been ill and I, I was very exhausted, and somebody suggested to me that I should go on a vacation. So I thought, hey, you know, what's that? First of all, I'd, you know, what's that vacation? Then, you know, it was a, it kind of explained what a vacation was. And, that, and I did it, you know, I did it. I found myself there on vacation. But I noticed, you know, I was on this Greek island, you know, and I was sitting by the beach. And I noticed this kind of posture I had, <laughs> you know, like it was like this one, you know. And I noticed I was kind of slightly on edge, you know, and when I looked at it, I was re- realized I was waiting for somebody to come and ask me for an interview. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, like where, you know, where, where are they coming? You know, like, couldn't believe that, you know, you, I could just let that go. And sometimes our, our holding onto those roles can be really, really subtle. It's a kind of pseudo safety, isn't it? Whenever we lean on anything, it's a kind of pseudo safety. It's really not very real. Um, it keeps us in a kind of familiar territory, maybe, where it feels like there's fewer risks. But, you know, it crumbles. It's the bottom line. But a lot of things we lean on upon in this life crumble. Now, we're not actually being asked to find a place in ourselves or in our lives where there's no fear. You know, we're not being asked to reach a destination where fear never arises, or to think of fear as being some kind of spiritual failure that should never appear. I mean, if, if you've been hurt deeply by someone, you know, you know, then the possibility of encountering that hurt again may very well evoke fear. If you've had a very painful physical or emotional experience, then you may and probably will fear its return. You know, if you've ha- had the experience of really being lost in the grip of some incredibly intense inner storm, you may fear its re- repetition. The arising of fear is not a problem. It's not a problem. And tell you another vacation story. This year, actually, not very long ago, I had the opportunity to go somewhere quite warm. And and when I was there, somebody said that you can go swim with dolphins here. Now I thought this sounded really neat, you know. And of course, people really talked it up. You know, like, this was going to be one of the best experiences of my life. You know, <laughs> I was going to go swim with these dolphins. <laughs> So anyway, I thought, yeah, hey, hey, why not, you know. So I went, you know, and it looked pretty sound, you know. I mean, the dolphins were free to come and go, you know. They weren't, they weren't enclosed. They seemed to like to do this, you know. <laughs> How do you know what's coming? You don't know what's coming. <laughs> anyway, they, they were free to come and go. Anyway, so I thought, great, you know, I can do this ethically. I can do this. So actually, it was, it was pretty neat. I mean, I can't say it was that far out, you know, but it was pretty neat. You know, I, I was in there swimming with these dolphins, you know. And they were very playful, you know, but I can't say it was transcendent or anything like that. It was just kind of fun, you know. Anyway, swimming with these dolphins, you know, and, and one of them was pretty playful and it was rolling me out of the over in the water and I was really quite enjoying this. And then it bit me. <laughs> and that was pretty startling an experience. And, and then it bit me, and then it swam away from me. And I was quite far away from shore, you know. And if I thought that if I could outswim this dolphin, I would have, I would have so been out of there. You know. <laughs> but I knew there was no way I was going to outswim this dolphin, you know. So I, there I was treading water, bleeding in the water. I might say, you know, this was actually a fairly serious bite. I mean, I was way yeah, bleeding in the water. And I see the dolphin turn around and come towards me again. You know. And my first thought was, dolphins are not vegetarian. <laughs> uh, this, I knew, you know. And my second thought was, this is really a good time to have beginner's mind. You know? Anyway, it just came, you know, and it, and it, and there was fear, there was no doubt, there was fear. You know, it was bare, naked, raw fear, but there wasn't any choice. There wasn't any choice. I mean, I, you know, I could shout and scream, we wouldn't do anything, you know, I'd come and come agitated, it out. So I went, none of that was going to work. So there was really no choice. You know, so I just, you know, <laughs> faced this dolphin, which are big animals. I have to tell you, they're really big creatures. <laughs> I mean, it just came, you know, and it was all it was all fine. It was all fine. I mean, it didn't want come for another mouthful. <laughs> I mean the arising of fear is actually not a problem. It's not a problem. It's, it's really what we do with it that arise, when it arises that gets us into trouble. that's truly significant. Whether we consent to that fear really being the guide of our actions and choices of respo- and responses. Whether we endow that fear with authority in a way in which we become imprisoned by it. Or whether we can just turn towards that fear. The waves that come to not even fear the fear. Just turn towards it to know sometimes what is wise action. You know, even what is wise fear, and to know when it needs to be released. You know, I often think of fear as being this passageway between what we know and what we don't know, between the familiar territory and the untraveled ground. And you know, in this in this pathway and in this quest for freedom, you know, we're always going to be invited to travel that passageway between what we know and what we don't know between what is travel ground and what is really unknown to us. That's inevitable. We don't do this to stay the same. You know, and if we're not going to do this to stay the same, then eventually always, all of us, are going to be invited into territory that is unknown to us. You look, really look, you know, when you get really interested in fear. You know, fear is something you can get really interested in. Certainly at different times in my practice, I've really been interested in fear, in really looking at kind of what is the ground of fear? What is the origin of fear? And, and very often seeing that, that the origin of fear really lies in this belief of kind of having a very separate self that lives in a, a world of many, many different separate selves that aren't always perceived as being benevolent to us, that aren't always benevolent to us. That almost every dimension of fear is somehow rooted in this kind of singular accepted unquestioned belief of I, of me. I mean, notice when there's fear, how much of a sense of I is present. You know, and from that belief, you know, from, from that kind of grasping to that belief, you know, there comes a competitiveness, the need to protect, the need to guard. The, the need to, to defend against intrusion. And safety then often feels so so elusive. You know, we, I think we often do feel, and I think a lot of the messages we get in our world is that basically we the, the world is frightening and unsafe place to be. And then we always need to be on guard against danger and pain. I mean, it's certainly not to say that danger and pain are an illusion. You know, if you've ever been mugged or anything like that, I mean... You know pretty well, there's not much point in saying to your mugger, you're just an illusion. <laughs> you know, there, there are real dangers. You know, there are real places where we're not necessarily safe. And yet it can be such a, you know, and, and, but fear is not the same as discriminating wisdom, is it? I mean, discriminating wisdom really does tell us when we need to protect ourselves, when we need to have boundaries. But that's very different than living with a kind of pervasiveness of fear. You know, we, we grow up with the mantra, you know, much more be careful rather than be wise. You know, somebody recently gave me, you know, there are a lot of people in this world who collect statistics. Um, some of them are very interesting. Recently, somebody gave me a collection of statistics that were done in the emergency rooms of American hospitals. And there were kind of surveys on, on injuries that warranted hospital treatment in, in, in people's ordinary lives. And do you know that last year, 50,000 people in America were injured severe enough to warrant a trip to the emergency ward by their pens and pencils and desk accessories? <laughs> Can you imagine that? 400,000 people last year in America were injured by their sheets and pillows. <laughs> and 142,000 were injured by their clothing. I mean, obviously, this is not at all amusing to any of these people that it happened to. I mean, these, these were really, you know, it was not a joke to them. But really, you know, I mean, if such danger lurks in our desk accessories <laughs> and our underwear, you know. What do we think about relationship? Wow! You know. What do we think about relatedness? This really seems much more dangerous. What other dangers lie for us in weight, you know, with other people and the world, even in the events of our own body and heart and mind? So it's really not so much much a surprise, you know, when you get this combination of feeling to live in a dangerous world and, and this kind of belief system around a separate self, it's no surprise that so much time and energy does go into protecting ourselves. But some of the ways of protecting ourselves may also imprison us. You think that this path of practice is one that really directly challenges this duality of self and other directly challenges the dualities we make between aloneness and intimacy, because it really invites us to discover a way of being that's governed not by fear, but by freedom. So we turn. What we do is we turn a very gentle attention, a very mindful attention, to these places where we get hooked where we get hooked, where we abandon ourselves. And we learn, basically, to release the hooks. You know, really, all of our practice, even in the simplest ways, is learning to release the hooks, learning to untangle dwelling, to untangle ill will, to untangle the constructions, learning how to release ourselves, to define ourselves by nothing, to rely upon nothing, to depend upon nothing, to appreciate that, you know, to try and freeze anything within this changing world is somehow setting ourselves apart from it. You know, to try to, to hook anywhere within this changing world of body, mind, feelings, events, sight, sounds, is to set ourselves apart from it. And we learn to unhook. You know, even the times when we come back to the breath, we're learning to unhook. We're learning to release things. And sometimes, to our surprise, instead of anxiety, what we discover actually is a great peace and a great joy and a great sense of stillness. You know, fear comes and it will visit. And we come to know it in all its different textures, all its different tones, instead of bestowing it with authority, instead of running with it or fleeing from it, We see it within ourselves. We see the waves. We see the shifts. And it's really not so terrifying. We understand. And we're fearless in doing that. And we understand that fearlessness is not the absence of fear, not the non-arising of fear. But it's really the unwillingness to delegate authority to it. And in that, we really can rest in ourselves. We have nothing to fear inwardly. We can be alone. And we we really do sense that that aloneness is not a kind of isolated, austere, disconnected place. But it's, it's a very complete, a very whole way of being. And we learn a lot in that. We learn a lot about the lessons of intimacy. You know, we learn a lot about how to be generous towards ourselves. How to be forgiving inwardly. How to bring love, how to bring acceptance, how to bring compassion... And we don't abandon ourselves anymore. And there's really no more precious gift than learning how not to abandon ourselves. And those lessons we learn in religion, they are the keys of intimacy. They are the keys of intimacy. And we begin to learn that they're exactly the same keys and the same lessons. They really teach us about how to be alone with others and how to be all one with others. We really begin to understand that that we really can't afford in this life, in our world, we really can't afford isolation. We really can't afford separation. We really can't afford to abandon ourselves to anything or to anyone. And we really do. do need to treasure understanding what it means to be alone and what it means to be intimate with all things. I'd like to end with a a poem by Mary Oliver. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the East begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send out the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two trees, and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upwards. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I'm touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches, he raised his head he looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. we just a couple of moments quietly?